All right, let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thank you, Eric and Heidi Jean, and thank you, Teen Choir, for preaching those truths to us. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, and last Sunday, Pastor John preached on the grief and the hope in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And so this morning, we want to work through the rest of the paragraph, verses 13 through 18, my probably favorite things to teach or favorite times to teach are those moments when I feel like I didn't understand uh, some section of God's Word and then, and then I was able to reach a point where I felt like I did understand it. And that makes it exciting to get to talk about it and uh, work through this this morning. This is uh, an intriguing section. For one reason, this includes a, a truth from Jesus that's brand new in the New Testament not revealed during the earthly life of Jesus, but to the apostles and prophets. And it's a section that points us to the hope that we can carry with us every day, knowing that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, we'll always be with the Lord. Um, It's a paragraph meant to stir up our our hope. It's a very interesting um, and encouraging paragraph. So let's pray for just a moment, and then we'll start in verse 13. Father, we look to you now as the one who... Uh, perfectly knows in your wisdom, you know every single heart. You know what's going on in our hearts better than we do. You know the deepest struggles and thoughts and intentions and, and trials and weaknesses and temptations and all of that turmoil that rolls around in our hearts, mysterious to us sometimes but always known to your wisdom. And so here we have come to seat ourselves before the Word of God, to expose ourselves to the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, not just to create some sort of external conformity or show, but to actually be changed in our hearts to know you and love you and trust you and even think and live like Jesus. So I pray that you administer these truths to every heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, first phrase, we do not want you to be uninformed. So, number one, there was confusion. There was a missing piece that was causing unnecessary grief. A missing piece that was causing unnecessary grief. As Pastor John showed us, those who are asleep is referring to those who have died. And when we keep reading, it becomes clear that in this section, he's talking about Christians who have who have died. So the Thessalonians were missing some piece of information about the death of their fellow believers. Remember, they had only just recently become Christians for a year at the most, maybe only six months, and yet they already knew some Christians who had passed away. 
Now, the Thessalonians knew about the death and resurrection of Christ. They knew that Jesus was coming again, but there was something that was missing so that when a brother or sister in Christ died, they experienced some unnecessary grief. And as Pastor John said last Sunday, the problem wasn't that they grieved. That's not what he's talking about. The problem was that this missing piece meant that they were grieving in a way that might have made it look like they didn't have hope, even though that wasn't really true. They did have hope. They did know Christ and salvation and resurrection. They weren't hopeless, but they were a little confused. And so when someone passed away, it was adding to their grief. So what were they confused about? Well, there are some differing uh, views about that, but there's a very straightforward way to understand it. Uh, based on the rest of the paragraph, and Pastor John already introduced this well last Sunday. The Thessalonian Christians knew that Jesus was coming again and that when he came again, it was going to be amazing. You don't want to miss it. And they were hopeful that Jesus might come again in their lifetimes. Does any of this sound familiar? Do you know anybody who knows that Jesus is going to come again, knows that it's going to be amazing, and hopes it's going to happen in their lifetime? Hopefully that's you. And so, when someone in the church died, they were really heartbroken that this brother or sister wasn't going to get to experience the glory of Christ's return. You know what? Sometimes when we see that someone's health is really rapidly declining, and we might hope that they might live to it like a birthday or an anniversary or the birth of a grandchild or something, And if they pass away before that, it adds another layer to our grief because we hope they might live to see that. Well, in a similar way, the Thessalonians wanted everyone to be alive when Jesus comes again, which we would all love. And so when a Christian passed away, it just added this layer of grief for them. Not that they thought the person wouldn't go to heaven or anything like that, but they just thought, ah, they're not going to get to see it. You know, they're not going to get to experience Christ's return. So um, we'll see in just a minute what they were missing that would take away that extra grief that they didn't need to have. But first of all, let's just not miss the basic fact that they were right that the return of Christ will be glorious and you don't want to miss it. And you certainly want to be a forgiven child of God when it happens. There's a word in the middle of this paragraph that reminds us of the glory of Christ's coming. It is down in verse 15. It's in the middle of the verse. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. And that word translated coming actually points us to how glorious this is. If you've ever come across the word parousia, that's the word here. And parousia could be used for just a normal coming, like somebody coming over to your house. But it also had, it, it, was, it could also refer to like special arrivals in two, two ways that both, okay, it was used in two special ways and both of them apply directly to Jesus. The first way it was used was for an official visit of a person of high rank, like a royal visit, like the king is coming to town. That was a parousia, the arrival of the king coming to visit. And the second way the word was used was for the the revealing of God, God revealing himself, making his presence known. So knowing those two things, are you surprised at all to learn that Jesus used this word a lot? to describe his own coming? 
It will be, when Jesus comes again, the most royal visit by the highest ranking ruler ever. And it will truly be God revealing himself to humanity. That's why another key word for the second coming of Jesus is the title of the last book of the Bible. What's that? Revelation. Because the second coming of Jesus is the revealing of God, the Son, to mankind. The King of Kings will arrive. The Son of God will be revealed to mankind. And it will be more amazing than anything anyone has ever experienced. The problem with talking about this as a preacher is that there's no way to express it, right? I don't know. Until we experience it, until we see it, we just know nothing on this earth you've ever seen or experienced will be like it. It will be amazing for the ears. In a moment, we'll read about the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. It will be amazing for the eyes. Just to give one example, Jesus said in Matthew 24, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be amazing for the heart, as Paul wrote, uh, Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't let that phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, confuse you. It just means when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus comes again. So set your hope fully on the grace that will be, that will be brought to you then. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I hear that if you take the little boat to the foot of Niagara Falls, it is unbelievable, the force of that, that, that water. And so when I read Titus 2.13, or, or 1 Peter 1.13, I just think of this like, Niagara Falls of grace that comes when Jesus comes again. It's like, on to God's people. You have placed your whole life and eternity into his hands, and now here he is. The world has mocked him, and now here he is. You have studied his glory. You have believed in his glory, but now you can see his glory filling the earth and the sky. You have, as we sang about this morning, you have walked with him through suffering and through pain and through struggle by faith. And now here he is, the one you've been walking with. You have believed in him by faith, and now here he is. You have waited and you have prayed and you have hoped, and now here he is. So as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he comes again, you will marvel. So, no wonder... The Thessalonians were heartbroken when they thought that their brothers and sisters who had already died were going to miss it. Not miss heaven, but miss the glory of the coming of Christ. Okay, so how's Paul going to help them with this? What was the missing piece? Well, he states it directly in verse 14. So we can call this, uh, the blank on your handout is instruction. Here's the teaching that they need, the instruction, the missing piece. Verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, that's the missing piece. And here's how I reworded it just to make sure I was understanding it for my own sake. When Jesus comes again, 
God will bring with Jesus those who have died. And in, this, in verse 16, we'll see he's talking about those who have died in Christ, those who are born again. When Jesus comes again, God will bring with Jesus those who have died because Jesus died and rose again for them. So that was what they were missing. They didn't know that those who have died in Christ are actually going to come with Jesus when he comes again. So let's look at that verse a little bit more. First, look at the end of the verse. God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Look back up the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 13, and look at the end of the verse. At the coming of our Lord Jesus, with whom? With all his saints. So again, there's the missing piece. Jesus is going to come with all his saints. And the reason why we can be sure about this is because Jesus died and rose again for them. That's the logic of verse 14. Look at it again. Back to 4.14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It is because Jesus died and rose again that we can be certain he will do that. What is implied there, but not directly stated there, is that because Christ died and rose again, so all those who belong to Christ will be raised also. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Christ's resurrection means that we will be raised. Paul implies it here that the dead will be raised so that they can return with Christ, but he doesn't actually talk about the resurrection here in verse 14 because that's not the missing piece. They knew about the resurrection They didn't know that God will bring the dead in Christ with Jesus when he comes again. So, verse 14 is the instruction about the missing piece. Now, verse 15 is the application. Paul makes sure they understand how that helps comfort them with that extra grief they were feeling. Verse 15 is reassurance for their grief. Here's the application, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So simply put, dead believers won't miss out on anything when Jesus comes again. If anything, they're going to have an advantage over living believers. (laughs) He says living believers will not go before them. Well, how can Paul be so sure about this? Well, see the first part of verse 15? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. All right, so let's zoom out for just a second there. We've started studying a section of 1 Thessalonians that's about the second coming of Christ. If you look down at your Bible and just look at the section headings, you can see that this goes from chapter 4, verse 13, all the way down to chapter 5, verse 11. So it's a big section, 19 verses about the return of Christ. And in this section, Paul very often uses the same words and concepts that Jesus used when he talked about his coming. You, I actually saw one um, Bible student who, who made a chart 
of all the, all the, thing, the words and phrases Jesus used about his second coming and how Paul uses those words and phrases in close parallel, and there's like 20 of them in this, in this section. So you, there's direct parallel between the Gospels and what Paul is writing here, what Jesus said and what Paul is saying here. But verse 15 is not talking about that. Verse 15 is talking about a new truth that you won't find in the Gospels revealed by Jesus either to the Apostle Paul or to one of the prophets. Interesting, remember that, uh, well, who, who is this letter from? Do you remember? Should we go back and look? First Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Who's it from? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus also called Silas. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 15, what does it say? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. If you look in the book of Acts, Silas is clearly identified as one of the New Testament prophets. And so it's possible that this was something that Jesus revealed to Silas or to Paul just as Jesus had promised would happen in in John uh, chapter 16. So the point is that this truth here is not a truth you're going to find specifically back in the Gospels. It is a new truth that Jesus revealed. And the truth is that dead believers won't miss out on anything when Jesus comes again. He is actually going to bring them with him. So the same Jesus who is coming again personally guarantees that the dead in Christ won't miss out on anything when he does. Does that make sense? Like, Jesus is saying, I promise you none of my kids are going to miss out on anything. (laughs) All of my children are going to be, all of the saints are going to be part of that that coming. Okay, so, you know, the paragraph could end right there, right? The sermon could end right there. Uh, He has given them the information they needed to calm their hearts about those who have died in Christ. They've got the missing piece. They aren't uninformed any longer. They have been comforted. And, you know, I realize that for you, it may not, it may not feel especially comforting if you didn't have the miss. I mean, if, if you weren't missing the piece, they were missing. If you feel like, well, I already knew that. Um, but I do think it is good for us to just simply remember uh, no believer who has passed away is going to miss out on any of the glory of Christ's return. Uh, God is going to make sure that they fully experience that. Um, and that is a beautiful truth. And they'll even have a, a head start on those who are alive. Uh, we'll talk about that more in just a second. So we could stop right there. Um, but the paragraph actually continues because some questions linger. And we'll get to those questions in just a second. But first of all, let's pause And note that if you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then you are not ready for Christ's return. And nothing we're talking about this morning is good news for you. It is bad news for you. It is all bad news. If you return today, it would be too late. His return would not be glorious for you. You would not marvel at it except in in, in a... a a kind of terrifying sense of awe at his glory. 
He is coming to destroy the evil kingdoms of this world and to bring all people before him in judgment. Psalm chapter 2 says, Be wise, be warned, and then it says, Kiss the Son. Now, Psalm 2 is about Jesus as king, God setting up his king. And so, kiss the son is referring to bowing before the king, like kissing his ring or his staff. It symbolizes recognizing his authority, bowing before him as king, bowing before Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so, so Psalm 2 says, be wise, be warned, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As someone said, uh, Dominic Steele says, there is no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. You can't hide when he comes again. He's coming as judge, yet he is also your refuge. He's the one who died on the cross in your place for your sin. And so you have to come to him. You have to give your life to him as your Savior and King. You have to repent of your sin, and he will save you if you will. And then this all becomes good news when that is true. All right, back to our text. Paul has given them the information they needed to calm their hearts about those who have died in Christ. He's told them they're not going to miss out on anything when Jesus comes again. But some questions linger, and here's the way it lingers for me. Let's think about what happens to a person who dies in Christ. Now, there are some things we don't know about that, but the Bible tells us what we do need to know. So when a born-again child of God dies, what happens to them? Well, their body stays here, we know that, and is, and is buried in some way. And then their spirit goes to be with Christ. For example, Moses and Elijah, they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul said, I'd, I would rather be away from the body and be at home with, with the Lord. My desire, he says in Philippians 1, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Okay, so, so here's the lingering question. If their spirits are in heaven with Christ, and yet their bodies are here on earth in the grave, then how's this going to work? How is God going to bring them with Christ? Is it just their spirits that are going to come with Christ? And Paul answers that question. So in verses 16 and 17, we have explanation, and this gives us details about the missing piece. It's interesting because there are many times in the Bible where when the Bible's talking about future things, we're like, wait, wait, I have a question. I want more details. And the Bible, God doesn't give them to us. But here he does. Uh, he gives us more about this. So let's read verses 16 and 17, and then we'll work through them one phrase at a time. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, let's take it a phrase at a time. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus himself 
is coming again. And from our perspective, he's going to descend. Now, we live in a round planet, and (laughs) heaven isn't literally just above us. We know that. Um, You can go back and listen to the heavens sermons from last January um, for more about that. But from our human perspective, Jesus did ascend, Acts chapter 1, and the disciples were told he's going to return. (laughs) He's going to come back down. He's going to descend in the same way that you saw him ascend to heaven. So Jesus himself will visibly descend from heaven to earth. And verse 16 continues, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It will be loud. Now, we could go and trace those three sounds in other Bible passages about the return of Christ, and that study can get really interesting. Um, But it's not Paul's point here with the Thessalonians. The end of verse 16 tells us the point. It says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, the word rise there does not just mean go up. It means to be resurrected. It's the future passive of the verb for resurrection. The dead in Christ will be resurrected first, okay? So that tells us the point of the cry, the voice, and the trumpet. Now, they may have more than one point that we could see in other passages, but here in this context, that is the sound of the authority that causes resurrection to happen. This is pictured for us in John chapter 11. Jesus is with this crowd of mourners. They are weeping loudly. He was weeping with them. And they're, they're, they're in this like processional to the tomb where Lazarus had been buried. And they came together to that stone cave and they're weeping And then Jesus shocks this weeping crowd by suddenly saying, take away the stone. And Martha says, Jesus, it's been four days. He's going to stink. And Jesus says to Martha, basically, watch and you'll see the glory of God. And so he told them to go ahead and roll that stone away anyways. And so then while everyone... I don't know, held their breath, held their noses, maybe. Jesus prays. I wonder how many people close their eyes during that prayer. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. John chapter 5, verse 25, which is on your handout. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will Hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He said, it is now here, because the life giver was standing right there in front of them. And he had just given them a sign, an indication that he was the life giver, because he just called Lazarus out of the grave. So if God has made you spiritually alive through Christ, then if Jesus doesn't come again before you die... Your body will someday hear the voice of the Son of God calling you out of the grave. And it will be an irresistible voice. It'll be a powerful voice. It'll be a life-giving voice. And your body, suddenly transformed into a new glorified form, is going to rock it out of that grave and come to Jesus. He's going to call it to himself. Verse 17. Then... 
We who are alive, who are left. All right, so you're familiar with the phrase left behind. There was a book or two with that title, right? But who is left behind in this verse? Remember how verse 16 ended? The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left. So in this verse, those who are left behind is the living Christians. That's only for a split second, maybe even not a measurable amount of time. But the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive who are left Okay, what does it say in verse 17? We'll be caught up together with them. Caught up, snatched away, seized suddenly, taken from one place to another. Christ is coming to earth. The spirits of the dead saints, I think, are coming with him. The bodies of the dead saints are suddenly resurrected when they hear his voice and they meet Christ. And then immediately the living saints are snatched up with them. This requires something to happen right then, which Paul doesn't mention here. It's actually another new truth not found in the Gospels revealed to the apostles and prophets that he tells us about over in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's important because Jesus could come again this morning and you're not ready. I mean, in a sense, you are ready if you know Christ as your Savior. But really, are you in good shape right now to just go be with Jesus? You're not you're kind of a mess. You've still got a sin nature that's plaguing you. You've got weaknesses and temptations, and you've got that body not ready for heaven. This group of people right here is not ready to just poof be in heaven. Okay? And so something's got to happen in that moment when Jesus comes and the dead in Christ have been resurrected and they're taken up to be with him. And then he's going to snatch us up to be with him. Okay, so look at your handout, 1 Corinthians 15. What's he going to do? Behold, I tell you a mystery. So that's a mystery is something we wouldn't know if God didn't reveal it to us. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, meaning the living, who are still alive when Christ comes again, we shall be changed. The dead will be raised. The living will be changed. God will transform our bodies into our new bodies, our resurrection bodies, our sinless and glorified bodies. And that will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when the living Christians are snatched up together with the dead Christians who have just been raised. God's going to transform you. Now back to verse 17. The verse tells us where. It says, in the clouds, and then it says, in the air. Okay, so the air refers to the atmosphere above us, but the clouds indicate more than just the clouds. In the Old Testament, God's presence came in the clouds. And if you remember from our study of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom that is over the whole earth, he comes with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus said, essentially, that's me. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 30. All the tribes of the earth 
will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. At the trial of Jesus, he said to the, well, the high priest said to him first, he said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So when we are snatched away into the clouds, it's not just clouds. It's the revelation of the God-man, the King of Kings, to pulverize the kingdoms of this earth, Daniel chapter 2, and to establish the final eternal kingdom. So in the air, in the clouds, back to verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. When I was a kid, I met one of my favorite basketball players. I stood in a monstrously long line down the mall to get to a little sporting goods store. And uh, when I waited through that line and got into the store, I bought a little team pennant. And when I got up to the table, he asked my name. I told him my name. He wrote to Tim and signed his name. And I walked away absolutely thrilled. And I still have that pennant tucked away in some box somewhere in our house. But I never met him again, and he didn't have the faintest idea who I was. He was just getting paid to sit there and sign autographs, which I didn't care about as a you know, 10-year-old boy or whatever I was. That is not what it will be like when you meet the Lord. The word meet here was used in Greek for those who would go out of the city and welcome a high-ranking official when he was coming to visit. They would greet him with fanfare and rejoicing, and then they would accompany him into the city. Now, how much of that parallel Paul has in mind, I don't know for sure. But the point is that it didn't mean meet like I met that basketball player. This was the, a royal company coming out to welcome an important person who was arriving. And even more importantly, we know that when Jesus comes again, he's coming back for us. So this is nothing like the basketball player who didn't have the faintest idea who I was. Jesus is coming to earth for you. After all, we just read about this thunderous voice that calls his people from their graves and then snatches away the living to be with him. You know what? We don't decide to go out to meet him. It's not like we get together and say, hey, Jesus is coming. Why don't we like get some palm branches and get ready and let's go meet him? He just brings us to himself. He knows us. He's coming for us. And he brings us to himself as he returns, personally knowing and loving each one of us. When we meet him, it's this like glorious reunion that will never end. I, I, I picture the father and the prodigal son. Now, there are many ways in which that story is not parallel to the second coming of Christ. I know that. But to like contrast with the basketball player writing to Tim and, his, you know, and then off I go, I picture the son coming home and the, and the father coming out and that embrace, that joyful reunion, enduring reunion back together. It's going to be like that when you meet the Lord, not like, hi, nice to meet you. It's going to be you and your God and your King and your Savior brought together forever. And verse 17, Paul nails that home at the end of the verse. It says, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the end result. 
for the believers who have died and suddenly been resurrected, the end result is that they'll always be with the Lord. And for the believers who are alive when Jesus comes again and are snatched up and transformed, the end result is that they'll always be with the Lord. Okay, but wait a second. Some of us have questions. When Jesus comes and the dead are resurrected and the living are snatched up to be with him, what happens next? Does he take them back to heaven for seven years of tribulation and then they come back to earth? Does he take them back to heaven for three and a half years of great tribulation on earth and then they come back to earth? Does he snatch them up, they meet him in the air, and then they come back to earth at the same time? Some of you know about those questions. Those are great questions. This passage doesn't address them. Because in verse 17, Paul just jumps right to the end and he says, we will always be with the Lord. (laughs) We go from that moment when we meet him in the air to we will always be with the Lord. That's in this context what we need to know. I'm not saying there aren't other things to study in other passages, but in this paragraph, that's where we need to end. We will always be with the Lord. And that's all we'll care about uh, forever. I think he's saying to the Thessalonians, I understand why you were grieved to think that believers who died might miss out on the glory of Christ's return. So I've cleared that up for you. But you know what's even more important? That everyone who belongs with Christ will always be with the Lord. That's the bottom line that's most important. You know, when I when I met my basketball, one of my basketball heroes, I wasn't there because I mattered to him. But when you meet Jesus, it will be because you matter to him forever. Because he wants to be with you forever. John 17, verse 24, he prayed to the Father and said, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And in John 14, 3, he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He doesn't come and get you grudgingly. He comes and gets you joyfully because he died to save you. He paid the price to ransom you from the slavery of sin to himself. You are precious to him, described in the Bible as a precious jewel, a precious child, a precious image bearer. And you're going to always be with the Lord. Once again, how do you even get words to describe that? Somebody else wrote, This state is beyond human description, even for an apostle who's disclosing a prophetic word. Even Paul doesn't elaborate. He just says, you're always going to be with the Lord. Jesus is going to resurrect the dead saints so that they participate in the glory of his coming, and then they'll always be with the Lord. And Jesus is going to snatch away and transform the living saints They're going to participate in the glory of his coming, and then they're going to always be with the Lord. So, knowing those things, verse 18 then gives us the exhortation that we need. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's a, it's interesting that we talked last year when we were studying worship about how often in Scripture, sections of Scripture end with a blessing, a charge, or both. And we see that here. The blessing is the reassurance that you'll always be with the Lord. And the charge is, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We might expect it to say, therefore, 
Be encouraged by these words. And that's true. But Paul wants the church to take the truths and encourage one another with them, to speak to one another about these things, which means that what Paul envisioned was a kind of church culture in which the people talk to one another about the Bible. They talk to one another about the things in which they need encouraged. They talk to one another about the Lord. We call that a culture of discipleship, where people help one another grow. And this is just one verse of so many in the New Testament that point to this. Speak to one another. Encourage one another with these things. When the temptations are fierce and you just want to give up, God doesn't intend for you to be all on your own in those moments. But to have brothers who can encourage you that Jesus is going to bring us all to himself and we're going to be with him forever. When life is exhausting and you can just barely hang on, God doesn't intend for you to be isolated and all alone in that. But to have brothers and sisters who can speak encouraging words of the Lord for you. When, you, when we've lost someone we deeply loved in the Lord, God doesn't intend for us to be all alone in that. But to comfort one another with these words. When we can't make sense out of life, when our faith is just barely hanging on, God doesn't intend for us to be alone. Can you see how God tries to isolate you in those times? I mean, not God. You see how the devil tries to isolate you in those times because of what God intends for you to have other people around you. So these are some of the reasons why on the fourth Sunday of every month, we set aside time where the kids are still in childcare. And we've got time set aside just for this. We call it Discipleship Connect. And we do it right after the preaching of the Word to make it easy for you to take what you just heard and encourage one another with with these things. So that's what we're going to do here in just, just a couple minutes. You just find two or three or four other people and you group up together here in the auditorium and you talk about what was in the sermon or you talk about other things God's doing in your life. You talk about things you can pray for each other. You pray. It's just a time to build one another up in the Lord, and it's a really vital part of what we do as a church family. So that's Discipleship Connect. We'll do that in just a minute. And GBC family, make sure that we don't leave anybody out. Um, if we we've got guests that are here with us or people who've just come to our church recently and maybe it's their very first Discipleship Connect. If it's not your first Discipleship Connect, then help them, uh, help them jump in with that. So I'm going to pray in just a moment and then we'll move into that time. 10 to 12, you'll have Bible study here. Teens, you'll come right back for Bible study over here. Um, if you guys could come right away for those to begin, um, that would be great. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And whether dead or alive, when he comes again, you are going to be transformed and join in the glory of his return if you are in Christ. And you will always be with the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. Father, I pray that you would build the the faith of, of your people today. We're not to that day yet. Jesus hasn't come again yet. We're still walking by faith, not yet by sight. So you are the the giver of our faith, the sustainer of our faith, and the builder of our faith. And I pray that like Abraham, we would grow strong in faith, even through this word of the Lord this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.